<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. As you know, there is an important and very, very important uh, political decision that's going to be made this week. And that, of course, is the election for a new chair of the Democratic National Committee. Yeah, I've been around this uh, Democratic politics for a long time. I never remember. Usually it's the president who appoints the chair of the uh, of the DNC or the RNC, like President Trump appointed uh, Mitt Romney's niece to lead the RNC this year, the new chair to take Reince Priebus's place. I don't even know her name, but she's there. Uh, and so there's never big, any big drama about it. But boy, there is this time because it's an open seat. President Obama out of office. Uh, no clear person who could say no clear leader of the Democratic Party now. So it's been wide open. There has been as many as seven candidates uh, and we've had most of them here uh, in studio. We've really tried to get Keith Ellison in, uh, but his schedule, he's running around so much we're unable to nail him down. But he's been a guest here so many times. I feel like he's been in as a candidate as well. Uh, and there's a good field of candidates. I mean, those with state party experience, we've seen them all. Jamie Harrison, the uh, state party chair in South Carolina, tremendous guy, really, really good. Ray Baker, uh, Democratic Party chair in New Hampshire, uh, also a very successful state chair up there. Sally Boynton Brown, who is the executive director of the Idaho uh, Democratic Party, has done a great job building the party out there. All three of them uh, great people. Ray Baker has since dropped out and endorsed Keith Ellison, but any one of them, um, those three, those three people, I think could have done a good job in terms of building state parties. Um, getting state legislatures back, flipping them back to Democratic, getting more Democratic governors um, uh, elected, and and building the kind of 50-state foundation uh, that the Democratic Party needs if they're ever going to regain power in the House and in the Senate uh, and the White House. There's also the guy that uh, we were all sort of very, very much impressed. There is, I should say. Let's not use the past tense. A young guy that we're all very impressed with, uh, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. He's been in the studio here. Uh, what is he, 32, 35? Just turned 36. Just turned 36. There he is. Um, a lot of you know executive experience. He's been mayor five or six years. Uh, he's got a good record out there. People really like him. Uh, he's... Uh, He's left a center, but he's not, you know, a far lefty. But uh, it's okay with me. I think he would. He and he's from the heartland. He'd be a very fresh, exciting, exciting face. And then you've got two uh, national leaders, um, of course, on the national scene: a former Labor Secretary Tom Perez and uh, Congressman Keith Ellison from Minnesota. I think one of them is going to be that if it goes to multiple ballots, it could be one of the others. But I think at this point it's going to be either Tom Perez or Keith Ellison. And let me tell you, 
Uh, they're both great people. I'd be happy with either one of them as Democratic chair. Tom Perez is the former labor, as I said, former labor secretary. Look, no, he's the best labor secretary uh, we've ever had, certainly in, in our lifetime. He's a strong progressive. He has fought for minimum wage, for civil rights, for women's rights, for LGBT rights, for working families. His entire career in, in Maryland, um, in the state government there, and uh, and with uh, and the Secretary of Labor for President Obama. Um, he's got the right focus on building up the states. But here's my problem with Tom Perez. Uh, again, if he gets it, I'll support him. But he's still part of the Democratic establishment. Just by nature of being Labor Secretary, part of the Obama administration, supported Hillary in the primary. He's part of the establishment. And I don't think he'll be strong enough to shake things up the way things really have to sh- have to be shaken up, which is why I'm going to give I give my vote and I salute and I enthusiastically endorse uh, my good friend Keith Ellison to be the next Democratic chair. Keith Ellison, a co-chair, the strongest, strongest, I think, and one of the strongest. Let's not. okay, be real. One of the strongest, certainly, and one of the most effective and most articulate progressives in the United States Congress co-chair of the Progressive Caucus. He has led them into some real successes in his own district. He has built up voter registration, uh, increased voter turnout. He's a great grassroots organizer. That's what he's all about. Uh, And he has said that if elected chair, he will resign his seat in Congress, which will be a loss, but I think is necessary and a great move. He'll resign his seat in Congress to be a full-term Democratic Party chair which we need. So I think, and if you look around the country, other than Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, there's no stronger progressive leader uh, than Keith Ellison. And being, even though he's in Congress, still he's very much of an outsider, being an outsider and being a Bernie Sanders supporter, a Bernie bro, uh, I think he'll have the energy and the guts to really kick the Democratic Party in the ass shake it up from top to bottom, which is really what it needs. Um, Evan McMorris-Santoro was here yesterday, uh, who does his podcast now on Vice, interviewed Keith Ellison the other day about how to bring about change. Here he is. There are enough people who are new, because there are many, and there's enough people who have been around for a while who want change to make the change. If they're willing to just recognize that we have lost about as bad as any party can lose. And uh, he was asked at a George Washington University debate, which I attended back in January 18. So what's Democrats in Congress who are not voting uh, the way they should? I don't think it's the role of the DNC chair to go to a Democrat and say, you voted wrong here, you voted wrong there. You know what, they have party leadership that will deal with that issue. Uh, the DNC chair's job is to d- get Democrats elected and to get Democrats involved. Now, I'm going to tell you something about politicians. They see the light when they feel the heat. If you guys get involved and tell them that you're not all right with that, I think some votes will start going the way you want them to go. All right. There he is, Keith Ellison. So I say, yep, give the Democratic Party a swift kick in the ass with somebody who will unify the party Um, bring everybody together and give the party the new direction it needs. Keith Ellison, my candidate for Democratic National Chair.
national political reporter Jonathan Swan in here for his debut appearance as an Axios political reporter. Used to see him when he was working at the Hill. Hey, Jonathan. Hi, Bill. How are you? Congratulations. Thank you, sir. And you're not only at Axios, but this weekend, two days ago, you launched your own new newsletter. That's uh, right. Which will come out every Sunday night. That's right. It's a week ahead on the Hill and also with the White House, but um, lots of original reporting in there and very concise. So it's like you're not going to have to waste your Sunday, you know, mired through a sort of 4,000-word opus. Yeah, yeah, right. So so the two really, and I've signed up for both, um, Mike Allen, yes, the great Mike Allen from Politico to uh, Axios, does his morning newsletter. He does. And that's daily. Daily, yep. which you can sign up for again at Axios.com. And then while you're at it, sign up for Jonathan, who will come to you every Sunday And I'll evening, make one, right? more, one more piece of rock rolling. One more rolling. plug, okay. Rog, log rolling, which is well, two, actually. David Nather, who is just, if there's a better Obamacare healthcare reporter out there, I'm not aware of them. He's just phenomenal. Uh, he's been doing it for about 20 years, and he has a health one called Axios Vitals, which is every day. Axios. Axios Vitals. If, Axios. if all you did Axios was read, Vitals. if all you did was spend two minutes reading him every morning, you'd be completely across the healthcare debate. And the other one is Dan Primack, who does uh, deals and business, and he's fantastic as well. And you find them all by going same, to axios.com. That's okay. right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> your, <laughs> your, uh, your day maybe got a little more complicated, but a lot richer, right, if you follow that, right, if you follow that advice. So uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I know you have contacts, a lot of contact, because we've talked about this on the right. You've, you've talked to the people at Breitbart. What are they telling you today about Milo Yiannopoulos? Uh, so... The thing to know about Milo and Breitbart is that he doesn't have as much support in there as people might assume. Uh, there's a lot of staff who find him more trouble than he's worth. Um, I don't think the decision has been made yet. Mm-hmm. We might find out more in the next hour or two. But there's a genuine debate going on. It's been going on for the last ever since this whole thing blew up yesterday with CPAC. It's very notable that Breit. I mean, if Breitbart was going to defend him, you would have seen dozens of pieces already written, which is what they did when he got kicked off Twitter. But they haven't written a single thing defending him, and there's genuine debate internally about whether to keep him uh, or not. About whether to keep him. Yeah. Right. Okay. Is Steve Bannon involved in that? Absolutely debate? not. No, 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 no. Bannon. It's another misconception about Bannon is. Look, you know, there's so many things you you can say about Steve Bannon and lots of people do, but he's not an idiot. And the idea that he's using Breitbart now as this sort of, you know, the most hilarious thing, you know, there's been this whole thing between him and Reince Priebus and everyone's like, you know, they're at war or whatever. Now, that's a bit overdone. um, But the, the most funny thing about that whole thing is there was this sort of uh, stream of people saying, well, Breitbart did this hit piece on Priebus. That must have been Bannon behind the scenes getting them. I mean, the idea that Bannon would go, my secret plot to take down Ryan's Priebus is to plant a story in Breitbart. I mean, oh, yeah. give me a break. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just not happening. So right. Bannon's not involved. He's, he's, he's certainly not dumb enough to be, you know, playing sort of puppet master right. with this stuff. So Yiannopoulos uh, uh, lost his speaking gig at CPAC, uh, yes. which yeah, I'm sure he wasn't getting paid, was not getting paid for. Lost his book deal with right. Simon and Schuster, right. for which he was getting paid two hundred fifty thousand right. dollars, 
and may lose his job at Breitbart. Correct. That will, will we then never have Milo Yiannopoulos to kick around anymore? <laughs> I think Milo. I think Milo's going to make a ton of money. Uh, probably as a self-publisher. He'll probably make a lot of money off this book, but then I don't know where he goes after that. I think you're going to keep hearing about him because he's got this huge... Like, this is the thing about the internet. He's got this amazing yeah, following. Which is almost all you need these days. Right. right? Yeah. Right. Although to monetize it is the, is, is the challenge. Yes. Right. Uh, it was interesting yesterday, I found, that there were several voices. Uh, let me just mention two of them. Uh Defense Secretary Mattis goes to Iraq. Uh, Jamie, let's play that again. So here he is. So we know that Donald Trump, all during the campaign, said, this is easy. These stupid Obama people didn't realize that the answer in Iraq is the way we're going to pay for it is we're just going to take their oil, right? Here's Defense Secretary Mattis. All of us in America have generally paid for our gas and oil all along, and I'm sure that we will continue to do so in the future. Uh, we're not in Iraq to seize anybody's oil. Hello. And then Mike Pence at the same time is in Western Europe saying, we're here as part of NATO and as part of the EU, and we're with you, and our bonds are stronger than ever. What Donald Trump is saying, we're going to burn up the NATO charter. So isn't this interesting that this early in the administration, you have dissenting voices? What's going on? Yeah, it, it's also interesting. I mean, there was a, I saw some reporting on the Pence speech, and apparently he, the reception was quite muted for him. Well, I think, and, and I think didn't believe him. Well, maybe. that's right. It's like it's all well and good for you to say this, but we want to hear the president yeah. say it. So I think, I think uh, two things. One is Mattis is going to be a really interesting figure in this administration because I don't get the sense that he's going mm. to fall in line. Mm -hmm. I get the sense that he is going to speak his mind and be a very independent force. And perhaps also General McMaster, the new National Security mm. Advisor. He certainly, his his pedigree is, is very much in line with that. And Pence... And Mattis was a big supporter of his and... Right. A big booster of his right. in this decision-making process. So I think so. those two are going to be really interesting to watch. I agree. Um, I think McMaster, I mean, he's so smart. It makes me wonder why he took the job. But but he's he looks like first class, first class. Yeah. And with Pence, Pence is, is very careful, you know, to never really go too far with, with Trump. But... Um, He's just an orthodox Republican. I mean, he, and he's hawkish on Russia. I mean, this is like, this is what he believes. And the the strangest thing I remember about watching his debate against Tim Kaine was he didn't even attempt to sort of defend Trump or, or present the Trump positions. He just presented his own positions. <laughs> and they were, Trump had to say, well, I don't agree with him. I can't remember exactly. It might have yeah, been I mean, over right. Syria or whatever. But Pence has just always done this. It's kind of interesting. Right. Yeah. Uh, and Pence made no bones about it in, uh, when he was in Brussels uh, in terms of his reaction to, uh, to Michael Flynn telling him that uh, he did not talk about sanctions. Here's, here's how he put it, uh, if, we, if we have that, Jamie. His, I was, yeah, go ahead. I was uh, disappointed to learn that uh, this, the, um, the facts that had been conveyed to me by General Flynn uh, were inaccurate. I think it was a little more than disappointed. Right. Yeah, I can tell you, um, as someone who covered this and was having um, private conversations, yeah, disappointed is, is a mild word to describe his uh, reaction to that. Mm -hmm. um, 
it was also telling that his spokesman on the record told me and others that Pence learned about it by reading about it in the Washington Post. That was my next question. Donald Trump learned about it on Jan, February. No, Jan. No. I think it was Jan twenty six. Jan twenty six. Okay, and it was February like fourteen or fifteen. I think or it might 16. have been nine, February nine, when Pence read about it in the Washington Post. Was it that? That okay? I believe so. Okay, okay. I believe so. But there was a there oh, was yeah, a like about ten days period of time. Oh yeah, he was kept in the. So dark. Donald Trump learns about it from his White House counsel, who had heard about it from Acting Attorney General Sally Yates. Um. And Sean Spicer went through this whole timetable with us at the White House. Um, and he, Trump feels and the council, he, they said, at the, on that day agreed, well, whatever he did, it, it was not illegal. Maybe that question still remains. But they, de- they de- decided right. it was not good. And so they said, well, let's look into it more. But, but they did not tell Pence. And Pence is a guy who had been out there on – January 15, I believe, wasn't it? Or yeah, I, I don't remember. Let's get our it was on Face the Nation. But it was on but Face was, the Nation and right. said there, were right. no, there was no conversation on and, sanctions. And here's the thing. So Here's the thing. Pence was so categorical, and he was only categorical, yeah. and he was explicit about this. He was only yeah. categorical because he was given a categorical assurance by Flynn. And it's just not believable so that Flynn Trump... forgot. It's just not no, believable. Right. I agree. It's not believable. And Donald Trump, I think, found that, didn't believe that either. And why, did, why didn't Donald Trump tell Mike Pence? Um, I, I, have no insi- I have no insight into that. My, my, my uh, best guess from having studied Donald Trump's history is that it's not so much a sin to lie in Trump's orbit. It's a sin to get caught lying. And I firmly believe that if the press hadn't have written, if, if the Washington Post hadn't have got this story out, I think Trump probably would have kept General Flynn on. I, I think Trump wanted to, probably his first instinct would have been to ride this out and not to concede. The worst sin in Trump land is not lying, it's backing down. Mm-hmm. And it, you can mm-hmm. tell now when Trump gets asked about it, well, he defends Flynn. He says, no, he does. you know, does. it was you, the disgusting press yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And so... Trump, it looks like Trump didn't want to get rid of Flynn. I mean, give me a break. Yeah, Trump, yeah, you know, Trump yeah. didn't want to. He had to because his vice president was humiliated, publicly humiliated. And Pence, don't you think Pence must have made it clear to Donald Trump? Of course. You cannot of course. leave me hanging? Of course. Yeah, right. Of course. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. So happy today, right now, for the next hour, we're going to be joined by our good friend, frequent guest host here in the program, from The Guardian, Sabrina Siddiqui. Hello, Sabrina. Hi. Good to see you. Good to see you. It's been a while. You, yeah. Did you survive the first month of the uh, Trump administration? I suppose I have. I'm sitting here in the flesh. So here we are. I don't know how much that means, though. We're all taking it day by day. Um, one interesting issue uh, that uh, has um, popped up 
earlier than I thought it might. We've had three weekends in a row at Mar-a-Lago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the and Winter pe- White House. Yeah, the Winter White House, sorry. <laughs> uh, and some people are starting to ask, this looks like a pretty expensive little mm. weekend. Uh, and I saw a report yesterday that, in th- 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 of course, the White House won't tell what these weekends cost. Maybe they don't haven't added up all the bills yet. But that under President Obama, somebody did figure out a three-day weekend in Florida cost uh, American taxpayers $3 million. Mm. So you've got three weekends in a row at Mar-a-Lago, uh, upwards of th- over three. So it came out to about $10 million for those three weekends. The entire security bill for President Obama last year was $12 million. Mm. You have all the security that we're providing for Melania Trump and Barron in New York and for Trump Tower because Obama may decide to go there, right? Mm-hmm. So you add Mar-a-Lago, you add Trump Tower, and then you've got Donald uh, Jr. and Eric flying around the world making business deals with Secret Service protection. I, I guess my question is, do the, the American people care? But it looks like this is going to be the most certainly, by mm-hmm. far, the most expensive presidency ever. I think the American people absolutely would care if there wasn't such a sheer volume, as we were saying, of information to absorb, where this hasn't even broken through in terms of the top sort of stories that they could no, pay right. attention to, Good point. Good where point. any given day you have disarray, you have the firing of the national security advisor, you have a cabinet secretary going down, you have Donald Trump tweeting something outrageous, you have him still making false claims about voter fraud, and there's only so much that people can take care if if it had been another president, this would very much be at the forefront of the news cycle. And I also think um, it's interesting because you do f- find a lot of people would complain, for example, as you say, about what the cost may have been if First Lady Michelle Obama had traveled somewhere with the girls, if you know the president had well, gone away for the weekend. Of course, golfing was an issue. Bizarrely enough, the, the White House over the weekend was didn't was not straightforward about how many holes of golf admit, Donald Trump had well, played. Or no, <laughs> they weren't even. They wouldn't even admit that he played at all. First, they would admit he played yesterday. Yeah, then, then they said only a, a couple, couple, a couple of holes. Of holes. Right. Then obviously his golfing partner said, "No, I played a full 18." You know, yeah. I mean, BFD, golf, so just admit he played. Admit he if played. you go to a golf course, it's kind of a safe, safe assumption, and if you're there four or five hours, that you played golf. Right. Why try to cover it up? Oh, and he was having private, he was having top-level security meetings, yeah, at the golf course. Right. And he was very critical of President Obama for playing golf, and here you are in the position, and you see that this is actually a fairly normal thing for presidents to do. But um, the cost is one aspect. The other aspect, though, because you mentioned Mar-a-Lago that I think has raised a lot of questions, is security, because you had the incident where Shinzo Abe of Japan was in town visiting and was over at Mar-a-Lago with the president. And they're, you know, the White House is disputing this idea that any classified information was being shared over a dinner, but they're discussing this, you know, missile test on the part of North Korea. And it's not just the question of, is Donald Trump actually going to this secure compartmentalized facility, what they call SCIF, 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 the SCIF, the SCIF to be briefed <laughs> on classified matters. But it's also the idea that you have people paying $200,000 for membership in return, they have this up-close and personal access to the president, not to 
mention, yeah. unlike the White House, where you have a public log of who goes in and out, there's no public log of who goes in and out of Mar-a-Lago. We don't know what the vetting procedures are for people who subscribe in terms of membership. Right. And there's just no sense of what the mechanisms are that are in place because at the end of the day they could call it the winter white house but it's not the white house no and that would also be a much bigger story again if you didn't just have a constant churn where you can only keep track of so many no think about it it's a club it's a club where these Mm -hmm. people where people can show up for lunch show up for dinner uh as long as they pay their two hundred thousand dollars plus fourteen thousand a year i think annual dues or something Mm -hmm. like that the two hundred thousand dollars is just to get in Right, and it right. was one hundred thousand. They've doubled it, and they doubled it. And and for that price, you really get to schmooze with. You get access that members of Congress don't get, mm-hmm. that lobbyists don't get, that a lot of important people, important heads of causes or organizations never get. And that's that you're just at lunch, and the president of the United States walks up to your table. Hey, what's going on? You know, and you have a chance to chat them up, mm-hmm. right? And and it's but it's limited to uh, uh, even the number of members is limited. Right. Uh, but it's limited to people who can afford two hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, it really, uh, uh, it, it's a whole new approach to the White House we've never seen before, and, and it cheapens it, I believe, but certainly limits. Cheapens the, it, it, Bill. It's the classiest. No, well, only the ca- classiest, most beautiful White House we've ever seen. Yeah, it's fantastic. If, if that's your taste, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty tacky. The pictures of that sitting in that living room yesterday with a canned. Classical music overhead, sitting on this love seat with the two big gold chandeliers. Well, I mean, of course, the one of the first things that was done was to have the curtains changed from that kind of burgundy red to gold in the Oval Office. Everything must be gold. Congressman Tom Reed from New York, a Trumper from the very beginning, shows up at a little town hall. Uh, a couple of days ago, was it on maybe yesterday? Day Saturday. Before? Saturday, okay. Um, and he found out that his constituents up there didn't think quite the way he did about Donald Trump. Here's what that town hall, a little bit of what it sounded like. Demonstrated reasonable distrust of giving power to government, giving more power it's away the from people, government. It's the people, not the government. We want it. We want it. That is where that is a fair input, and it was part of the whole election so process. So why not disclose the taxes? As we go forward, it is a fair comment and continue. I'm sure the president is going to ask this question, ask this question. You allowed him to get away with You're enabling him. I love that phrase. You enabled him. Uh, people there are pretty feisty, not happy at that town hall. It's happening to a lot of town halls. So um, what we want to know now is basically, Sabrina, I see this as a basic old reporter question. Who, what, when, where, mm-hmm. how, and why? Uh, here's the man with the answers. Uh, Jimmy Dahman is the founder of the Town Hall Project joining us in studio. Hey, Jimmy. Good hey. to see you. Thanks for having nice me. Nice to meet you. So... Um, how do people find find out about these town halls? Where are they being held? How many are holding them? What's going on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's still a lot of members not holding them, but there we have over 400 events on our website. Uh, if you go to townhallproject.com, uh, you can search right. by zip code. Ta- um, Wait a minute. So you put in your zip code, right? Yeah. At townhallproject.com, there's a search function. You type in your zip code. It gives you the, the closest event to you. Um, so you can find an event in your district. 
Um, there's the, a bunch the of time and the place and all of that. Yep, right? location details. If you have the RSVP, any notes will be there as well. You can add it to your calendar straight from the website. Um, so you can find them there. Uh, they do update regularly, so we recommend checking back. Some of these pop up on like one or two days notice. Now that members are on recess, uh, there's a lot happening this week. Uh, so tons of opportunities for folks to get involved. Whoa. Where do you get the information from? Their office? Uh, so we collect it from a variety of sources. This is kind of uh, why we started this project, is it turns out these are just incredibly difficult to find a lot of times. Uh, sometimes they're posted on a website. Sometimes they're posted on Twitter like a day ahead of time. Sometimes they're not posted anywhere and you have to call the office to find it. So we, I put out an ask to my network and recruited 100 volunteers, over 100 volunteers now, who help me research all of these members. Everybody's assigned districts. Uh, so we're a totally volunteer-powered grassroots organization that uh, compiles this information from all these sources. And now that we've picked up and have a following on Twitter and Facebook, uh, folks are sending them into us every day. And we're getting new ones that pop up quickly and adding them to the website. Do all members of Congress have a town hall? No. Uh, I think Vice reported this weekend that there were more than 200 members <coughs> who didn't have any upcoming events scheduled, any public forums. Um, so I think folks are getting creative with how they are, are pushing uh, their members to have these town halls. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Indivisible in Florida, there was a, an Indivisible group that wrote a song to Brian Mast inviting him to a town hall that went viral. And uh, he accepted the invitation and is having a town hall uh, in the near future. Uh, Jim Jordan had a public event in Ohio. Uh, at Warren G. Harding's house yesterday and a crowd of uh, about 100 constituents showed up and just started asking questions. So they kind of uh, forced an impromptu town hall. Uh, So a lot of members don't have it, but I think now that people are expecting this and want this and uh, there's excitement around having that dialogue with your members of Congress that uh, they're going to start demanding these more and calling their members and asking for these types of events. Mm. Uh, Did you say you had 400 events on your... Yeah, I think it, it fluctuates by day, but I think we are at over 400 events right now on the website, so plenty of opportunities. We include district office hours mm. um, and other yeah. types of events that folks who, who may not have a, a town hall scheduled can can show up. And What's the near-term and the long-term goal here? I mean, I, obviously, some of the questions that have been raised that are more immediate, for example, are what comes of the health care law. Republicans obviously haven't put forward a placement plan. You're seeing a lot of consternation among constituents especially those who are recipients of Obamacare? And then to what extent is there a longer-term sort of infrastructure being put in place toward midterms and actually going and turning this movement into one at the ballot box? Yeah, yeah. So I think our our short-term goal is just uh, making sure this list is as updated as possible and folks can find their events um, and making civic engagement accessible to everyone uh, who wants to have that dialogue, who has questions or concerns for their elected representative. And then I think the, the long-term goal is to also push the members to have these events and, and make this kind of an, ex, an expected um, piece of uh, representation. So we think that the more people are... Plus to change public policy, right, on something like Obamacare. Sure. I think this is a, a good next step for a lot of folks who are, I think, there's the energy and enthusiasm <laughs> that we've seen across the country, red states, blue states, swing districts, safe seats, um, has grown so fast that, you know, first people went to these women's marches and protests and, and all these things. And now they want to get more involved locally and, and do something at home. And I think this is a, a next step. And those are the same people that, you know, year or two from now may run for office or volunteer on a campaign or uh, take more ownership over the democratic process than they may have before. So we think this is a, a nice opportunity to let them get involved where they live. 
Um, a lot of people, and I'm sure, Sabrina, you've seen this reporting, are comparing this to the mm-hmm. Tea Party. The, the echoes of the, the Tea Party. Are, are you using their playbook? So I think uh, a lot of people are, are, are drawing that comparison pretty quickly, but it's the town hall has been something that's you know been around since our, our country's founding that, that people have used uh, throughout yeah. the years. But, yeah, they, they were largely ignored. But you sense an opportunity, as you said. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think there's obviously just a tremendous appetite for for civic engagement, and I think it's a it's a natural place for for that to happen. I think uh, what we are encouraging is, is obviously folks to go to these town halls, ask respectful questions, start a dialogue. I don't think we're trying to intimidate any members of Congress or peddle conspiracies or anything like that. But I think um, as far as, you know, energy and enthusiasm, I think uh, there may be some comparisons there. So let's uh, try a slightly different way. Uh, I'm being a reporter, but uh, you had in 2009, 2010, Mm -hmm. this movement, this energy, a lot of it having to do with the Republican politicking around the health care law that the stimulus and other early Obama era policies that galvanized their base. And then what do you think has really changed with respect to Donald Trump that has brought about this energy that you say you're now seeing manifest itself in this interest in public uh, service and office? Yeah, I think I think the some of the the policies they've they've pursued have, um, you know, Created questions that people may have, or, or concerns that they're afraid they're going to lose their health care, or if they're afraid that uh, the progress on on climate change may be taken backwards, that they are a little bit more um, anxious to do something about it and to have those concerns addressed and to, to ask those questions. So I think um, by going to these and, and engaging in that dialogue is uh, is a is a step that in that direction, and, and I, I think it has. And the Muslim ban too. Brought out a lot of people who are concerned about either their own families or their neighbors or their friends and yeah, absolutely. Sure. And I think you know, so you saw the, the protests at the airports and, and things yeah, like that. Right. Um, and some of the people that may not live by a major airport or you know maybe live in you know rural Salt Lake City or Central Tennessee who may not have the opportunity to do that see the, these local opportunities as a way to uh, engage in the process. Three weeks ago, you started this. Yeah, yeah, with a. Uh, Hundred or so volunteers who are willing to to work hard and, and do the research here, and it started as a Google Doc we posted online, and uh, the response was just so tremendous that we have uh, tried to scale pretty quickly. Yeah, no, that's how the Women's March in Washington got started, right? A Facebook post, Facebook <laughs> event. Yeah, a Facebook event, and uh, for, for, to it forty turned people, into a bigger think, crowd than inauguration. <laughs> yeah. I yep. know. So no, that's great. Which, which, well, so your focus really is on the town halls, but. You know, we also see, like yesterday's protests, not my president, you've got the health care ones coming up that Bernie Sanders and Chuck Schumer are organizing, Bernie, with this new outreach responsibility in the Congress. I know on Earth Day there's going to be a big science, March for Science or mm-hmm. Climate Change. And Jamie, you mentioned yesterday one other about computer scientists or what? I forget, whatever. That, but these things are popping up, I guess, all over the place, right? Yeah. And, uh, and and the crowds at the airports, right? Yeah. Is that all part of your? So we're trying to keep on top of those too. I, mean, um, I think there's 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 other groups that probably have have those, and those things also pop up quickly and, and a lot, oftentimes spontaneously. Um, our focus is just to stick to events with members of Congress or their staff yeah. in the districts. Um, it's kind of been our wheelhouse, and it's uh, it's quite a lift on its own. So we're focusing on that, and I think there's plenty of other groups out there that are. 
organizing these types of uh, other events. Uh, and I've also heard that some members are suggesting that one way to escape your uh, crowds is to have a telephone conference, uh, con- uh, right? <laughs> a telephonic town hall. Yeah. Yep. Uh, there are quite a few of those happening. Uh, we post those on our website uh, so people can can jump on those. But oftentimes they are, you know, questions that are pre-screened by members of staff. Um, you know, they're shorter. You don't have that valuable face-to-face conversation. Um, so And only one person can talk at a time, yeah. I guess, right? Yeah. You, know, you monitor it. There can be unmuted or muted. So it's... it's like, oh, sorry, we got to go to the next <laughs> yeah, question. Not, Who's really hiding? Who's, who's really avoiding the crowds? There, there are uh, there are quite a few out there. Again, over 200 haven't had events. I know. I think it's it's either tonight or tomorrow. It's on our website uh, in California. Uh, Daryl Issa hasn't had like a public event in a number of years, and <laughs> and they are uh, hosting a citizens town hall uh, where they're going to get together and discuss issues. There's a couple hundred RSVPs. That should be a, a big event. I know they had one uh, yesterday, or the day before. In outside of Austin in Texas 25 in Roger Williams's district where uh, 250 people showed up to a restaurant to discuss the issues of the day and invited the congressman and press was there um, but haven't shown up. So um, people are getting creative out there and, and trying to, to get their members to hold these events. Uh, I find this very exciting. It is. You know, it's real, it's, again, it's organic. It's just happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's local and people can really, really plug in and they're doing it. Uh, yeah. And and so far, I mean, you know, it's all been, I mean, they've been loud, but all peaceful yeah. and respectful, and mm-hmm. you know, saying, and the stories about from people whose family members or themselves suffering serious illness, right. and what would happen it's if they lost compelling. Obamacare are very, very compelling. So, uh, thank you for what you're doing, and thanks for coming in again. It's townhallproject.com, Jimmy Domin. And Sabrina, always good to see you. What a great fun to spend an hour with you. Have a great day, folks. We'll see you again tomorrow. Press Show. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.